Have you ever wanted to know more about the judge set to preside over your case? Welcome to Beyond the Bench, where San Diego mediators Joanne Rezzo and Jim Picorni get up close and personal with judges from state court as well as federal court. Here are Joanne and Jim. Joanne, I am one guy that can't believe that we finally got Judge Demon to meet with us and talk, and he's been so gracious. Do you believe this? I can't believe it. We're so lucky. What do you think of this? It was my bad luck to be available when you called. <laughs> Don't make us feel too I, welcome. I, I just, I was, you caught me in a weak moment where I couldn't think <laughs> of a really good excuse. Being retired, I just, how do I say I'm too busy? I, it would be a lie. So, and how long can you have other plans? And when I called you, you said, uh, you saw my name on the phone and said, do, what do I owe? I said, it's just your lucky day. And it went from there and here you are. But you didn't define which type of luck. Yeah, I know. <laughs> luck goes two ways. And here we are. That's true. We can still call you a judge. I mean, you're retired for how long now? A month? Five months. It's been five months? It's been five months. So that means you played at uh, Judge Shopler's intro and you were already retired. I was already retired. Which is why you were underdressed. That was perfect. You were dressed like a rock and roll star. I was dressed like a, you know, an AARP person. A retired judge, not an active judge. <laughs> Although that's still how I would, would have dressed, unless I had come directly from work, that's how I would have dressed. Well, judges have those nice robes, too. You can cover a lot of sins with a nice robe. covers a lot of sins. Yes. <laughs> Nobody really knew how fat I was until I started appearing without my robe. It covers wow, a lot. you've really gained weight. No, it's been this way for a while. You just couldn't see it. <laughs> it's, just, it's always been covered up. It's the judicial equivalent of a muumuu, oh. the Hawaiian dresses. Very much so. And you know yeah. that we have to pay for our robes. They're what? not supplied. R- really? Oh, yes. What, did you, did you bring it home? You have it here now? Yeah, I own. I have two robes. I own them. I had to pay for them. You can write them off as an unreimbursed business expense if you care. Well, what do you do with them now? It's a bathrobe or what? Do you really want to know? What no, I, do I really now? don't. And we're recording this too. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this is remarkable. Let's back up. I've known you... Maybe 40 years. I mean, it's been a long time. I started as an assistant U.S. attorney here in 1983. 40 years. Yeah. Okay. So, but I, and as long as I've known you. I won't you, tell you guys where I was in 1983. Yeah, she was barely in, born. in the womb. Yeah, no, yeah, I was yeah. out of the womb. But yeah, just, just barely. Don't even go there. She's done this to me before. She's done this all the time. I love teasing Jim about how old he is. <sighs> Where'd you go to high school? I went to two high schools, Canarsie High School in Brooklyn, and I graduated from Port Richmond High School in Staten Island, New York, which we affectionately refer to as The Rock. Wow. And so did you, your notion of going to college when you were thinking about it in high school, did you want to head west? Where did you want to go for college? No one in my family had ever gone to college. Wow. I, had, I didn't know, other than the fact that my parents said, you're going to college, the rest of it was all on me. I had no one to ask, no one to turn to, but I knew wherever I went, it had to be for free because we had no money. Right. And I didn't, I didn't know anything. I didn't know anything about anything, honestly, except for that I was a, a good student. Uh, at that, in that era, and I don't know if it's true today, but if you graduated from a New York City public high school, you got to go to one of the colleges of the City University of New York, tuition-free. I think it's still the same because I've seen subway signs on the New York subway saying that. 
which was the which is how it was that I got to go to college. That's so great. So I, I applied to CUNY, and they ask you to express your preference as to which of their colleges you want to go to. Ultimately, they assign you based upon your GPA. And so I got to go to my choice, which was Brooklyn College. Nice. So this is for, for free. Yeah. yeah, as opposed to SUNY State University, has different that's system. Diff- differences in the state system versus the city system. Okay, so and New York City has its own college. System. So, what was your commute? I drove from uh, Staten Island over the Verrazano Narrows Bridge to Brooklyn, um, and it was uh, it was depending upon. I tried to work my schedule to avoid a lot of the traffic. There was a toll on the Verrazano Narrows Bridge, and it it was fifty cents. Each way for a while, then it went to seventy-five cents one way. Oh, yeah. and then I graduated and moved on. But now it's like twenty bucks. Yeah, yeah. it's crazy. Wait, so did you commute for four? You live at home for four years? I lived at home. Yeah, and I worked. Your wow. parents had to have been so proud of you. First one in the family to graduate from college. Yeah, I, uh, I yes, I I would have to say that they were, but they they had no idea what I was doing. I mean, I'd already. <laughs> surpassed them sure right and they there's no frame of reference for them so i would i came and went as i pleased for the most part i worked in a music store with my mother so she you know she was on top of my life and when i stopped working there i had other jobs in staten island so did you have any kind of advisors or mentors that were able to sort of mentor you on a sort of a professional level or no no wow no, I hadn't. I hadn't. That's incredible. The, the only, I wanted to go into the NYPD, which is where my father, my uncle, all mm. my father's friends, were, where they were. And I thought that was going to be my path. But in the early 70s, New York City was a very dangerous place, uh, particularly for police and firefighters. Right. My father forbade me from following in his footsteps. So now I had a problem. Right. Yeah, what do you do now? What do you do now? Well, you picked a good path. I picked... <laughs> Let's talk about that path. How did you pick it? I, I picked up the path of least resistance. So there I was in college. Uh, I was doing well enough. I don't remember most of my college years because I worked. I always had a job. Jim doesn't re- remember his for a different reason. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't. I wasn't a druggie. I, I just... Not that I'm saying you were. It was a purely hypothetical. <laughs> but I, I didn't sleep. I was in school, and then I went to at least one job. I, I just don't remember much of those of those four years. But in any event, it got to be third year, uh, getting toward the end of third year, when my father had forbade me from going into NYPD. And my then-girlfriend, who was very smart and knew from the time she was a little girl that she wanted to be a lawyer, she said, well, what are you going to do? And I was like, I don't know. I mean, I have the typical New York goof. Right. Think of John Travolta going, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Yeah. She said, well, I'm, I've signed up for the LSAT. Why don't you come sign up and take the test? I was like, okay. okay. First, I had to like, what is the LSAT? I had no idea. Sure. And back then, it's You didn't have like, any lawyer friends in the family. No, no, no. Yeah. No, no. Yeah. What and year was this? 1974. No. Yeah, 1974. Yeah? Yeah. Wow. Okay, so you took it. So I took it because back then there were, you, you didn't go through prep classes or yeah. practice exams. Yeah, you yeah. sign up, right. you take go, the test. you yeah. take the test. Yeah, so I signed up because she said I should and, and I took the test and I did okay. And so now I had to think about where do I, what do I do next? And she was like, well, this is the path to law school. It's like, 
Oh, so oh. that's what the L stands for. That's what the L stands for. It's <laughs> like, well, I guess I guess I'll apply to some law schools. I didn't know anything about that process either, and I also knew I had to kind of go on the cheap. Mm-hmm. I I thought you're going to let this out. What an idiot I was. I had only heard of two law schools. And here I am in New York City, but I only heard of two law schools. One was Cornell. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I assumed I wouldn't get in there because I did know enough to look and see what the, there's the, their LSAT grades were, their GPAs. Right. I wasn't quite there. Yeah. And then I knew about Hofstra University Law School on Long Island. I know a little bit about Hofstra. Her son is in Hofstra. Ah, and I was, I was above their level for what? law school. Yeah. So I said, I'm going to get in there. But I didn't know that Hofstra wanted you. This is like unknown unless you're in the circle, which I wasn't in. They want you to have like a politician, like you, to get into one of the academies. Uh, yeah, yeah. Oh. Write a letter, your local yeah. uh, state rep or something, sure. write a letter for you. I didn't know that. So I got waitlisted by them. No. Despite my grades being well above their, their level. Now I'm screwed, right? I get in the mail an application for a law school in Springfield, Massachusetts called Western New England. Didn't know where Springfield was. Never heard of the law school, of course. Wait, they solicited you? Yeah. So they got the LSAT results somehow, Yeah, right? somehow, I guess. Yeah, they must have. <clears throat> so, and I was raised right. So they sent me this thing with a pre-stamped envelope to send the app back. I didn't have to pay an application wow. fee. So I thought, well, it was nice of them to send this to me. So I'll fill it out and send it back. And I got accepted. Nice. So I guess I'm going to law school. I didn't know anything about tiers of law schools. Then. This was tier four. You know, it had just received provisional ABA accreditation. This is which JV. I didn't know anything about either. But at least it was accredited. Yeah, well, no, yeah. I did, that's good. I did confirm that. Wait, where's your girlfriend? Where'd she go? I, she went to um, uh, Fordham. I couldn't okay. afford that. Right. She had, you know, our yeah. family had, okay. had nothing. So they, accept, was, yeah, they, they accepted, accepted me. And I said, well, by this point, I'd learned something about how much I messed up by not applying to like a bunch of other schools. You know, I didn't know anything. But I thought, well, I could take a year off, which was not popular then. Very few people did. Or I'll just go to the school. And if it works out, great. If it doesn't work out, I can try and transfer if that if that's what I'm going to do. How far away was the school? Springfield is 90 miles from New York City. So you moved to Springfield. I moved to Springfield. Got a place? Home that of dorm? the Basketball Hall of Fame. Good point. That's good to know. Okay. Home of Milton Bradley Toys. Whew. Wow. Home of Smith & Wesson. Really? As in Bang Bang? As in Bang Bang. How yeah. many Smith & Wessons do you know? Not too many. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, you found a place to live. You got roommates. Turns with out my father's uncle lived in Springfield, Massachusetts. Boyfect. So we went, my dad drove me up there. We visited with his uncle, my, my great uncle. I found an apartment. It was cheap. And that's where, that's where I went to law school without knowing anything about anything. Well, how did a New Yorker who went to law school in Massachusetts end up in San Diego? Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. <laughs> okay. So um, and one of the reasons I didn't transfer, it kind of leads to it. I did really well there. So I decided not to transfer because I did not know because now I understood levels of law schools and I thought I was a, I was a, uh, 
big fish in this little pond. I was doing very well. Mm-hmm. I really liked it. Um, I did not go away to college. So I had my away to law school experience. And because it came easily to me, I did mostly intramural sports and had experiences I did not have. Uh, <laughs> Fun. Going away to college. And I really liked it. So after first year, when I was, I, I had done very well, I thought to myself, I should probably apply to a better law school. And then I thought, you know, maybe not. I'm doing well here. I got some friends, enjoying the experience. If it ain't broke. And I don't <laughs> know that I would do as well. You know, it, it, I, my assumption, maybe true, maybe false, was that as you go up in tiers in law school, you're getting a better quality, a smarter group. Mm-hmm. And maybe, 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 I, not. maybe I wouldn't be in the top 10 right. anymore. Um, so I decided to stay, which was good for me. Um, and because I ended up doing well, I was able, when I graduated, to land an interview in, at the Securities and Exchange Commission in D.C. Whoa, that's a big deal. Yeah, and I got lucky again. Uh, the luck was the day I went through the interview, and they interviewed me because I was I had really good grades. I was the first managing editor of the first law review in the school. So I had a good resume. Um, I was still kind of a jerk, but I had, I, <laughs> what did I know? What did I know? I was like a schmuck yeah. from Brooklyn. But they interviewed me because of this resume. And I went through the, res- the interview process in the general counsel's office at the SEC in D.C. Wow. And I finally got to the general counsel. And he said, and he was an interesting guy. He said, you know. We would never hire someone from your law school. Huh. But today is your lucky day because we have good information that there's going to be a government-wide hiring freeze starting tomorrow. And you, you got your foot were the, in the door. best candidate to come in today. Are you kidding? I love no, it. True story. That is a great story. The irony of that encounter was that general counsel went to University of Cincinnati Law School. He wasn't a tier one. Right. No, he wasn't. Right. Yeah. yeah. Look who's talking. Yeah. So that was, that was, that got me into my first job in DC. While I was there, I was, uh, I applied for and was given the opportunity to spend four months as a special assistant U.S. attorney in DC. DC is the only federal U.S. attorney's office that also handles local crime. Sure. DC is not a state. Right. Right. So they have a superior court division and a federal division. So I was, I went to the superior court and they try in, in DC. Most misdemeanors have jury trials. And they had nobody to try them. So they would bring in other government lawyers to try these cases. <laughs> what I was great one experience. Of them. So in my four months, I probably tried 10 or 11 jury trials. Went back to the SEC. I had to agree to give the SEC a year Mm -hmm. for having done this program. But I went back to the SEC saying, I don't want to spend the rest of my life writing memos. No. Now, wait, were you an attorney at that point? Okay. Okay. So So this is after graduation. Yeah. So then what? So then what was, as my year wind on at the SEC, I started applying to U.S. attorney's offices around the country. And I didn't care where I went. There was no civil service protection for AUSAs then. Mm-hmm. So during administration changes, offices would turn over almost 100%. Mm-hmm. 
Whoa. Wow. So I applied to every medium to large size office in the country because they didn't turn, they did not turn over a hundred percent. They kept a core mm-hmm. of career. Career prosecutors were very rare back then. So I applied to all these offices. I interviewed uh, ultimately with San Diego. I had to look on a map to see where it was. I was not terribly impressed when I got here. It was in January of 1983 for my interview. And it was, I liked the fact that it wasn't snowing. Yeah. It's a start. It's got that for it. But it was a Santa Ana time, which I didn't even know what that was. It was very hot, very prickly. Uh huh. I, my room I booked was the Holiday Inn at the foot of Broadway, Harbor Drive. Oh my goodness. And I walked up Broadway in early 1983 to get to the courthouse. It was not a pretty walk at that time. Having grown up in New York, I felt very comfortable. Sure. It smelled like urine, vomit, and beer. Which you felt I, right at home. Which I was used to. Yeah. You know, and these, these seedy bars, tattoo parlors. Yep. I really, other than the fact that the weather was nice, San Diego didn't mean anything to me. Yeah. And I grew up on the water in Brooklyn, so I could see the water. There you go. I, you know, it wasn't, I didn't grow up in Iowa. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I interviewed here in San Diego, and, and they ended up offering me a job. That's how I got here. Nice. Do you remember who interviewed you? Lots of people. Really? But the uh, And I think the reason I got the job, and, and back in the 80s, the U.S. Attorney's Office was mostly male. There were some women who were amazing, mm-hmm. but not a, not a large number. Uh, it was... It was Yeah, that's how it was back then. Times move, it's how it was. So it it was a pretty macho-oriented culture for the most part. Mm -hmm. When I went to interview, I had a black eye. And on my resume, as you look, you know, hobbies and interests, on the bottom it said, which was true, that I played ice hockey. And I did. So I walk into the various interviews, and someone would look at me, look at my eye, look at the resume, and say, oh, you play ice hockey. (laughs) And I would answer truthfully, yes, I do. But that's not how you got the black eye. They never asked. I never lied. They never asked. This is I got the black eye because I had a cyst. <laughs> no. Tiny, one of those tiny little cysts <laughs> under my eye. The hockey it's, injury is a much better story. It's a better story, but nobody ever asked. Yeah. So they assumed that I was like a goon, a hockey goon. So I was a tough guy that would fit right into the culture of that era. I think we call this passive non-disclosure. But it, so who interviewed you? Who was the key guy? You remember? Oh, the U.S. attorney was Pete Nunes. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. That, that went through. You interviewed. The office was very small back then. The I think the criminal division was 25 lawyers, if that. Was the new courthouse already completed by then the one at uh, 940 front street yes as they called it okay yes that was before then because that was built in 74 okay because before then they were across the street in what's known as the as the bankruptcy court now and the trailers in the trailers yeah. in the basement and all that stuff so you were you started there in 84 i started there in 83 okay and then as i joanne and i were talking about your career path there was a point in time where you were doing private consulting computer type stuff i mean you were really getting in the sophisticated niche so that's when you were not an AUSI. How did that work? I'm confused. So it worked that in 85, I transferred to the U.S. Attorney's Office in Boston because I wanted a different experience than border crime. Mm -hmm. In 89, I left the U.S. Attorney's in Boston for private law practice in Springfield, Massachusetts, um, because I wanted to do something different. 
I, my partner and I decided that we wanted to make the best use of technology that we could. Think 1989 technology. 89. I had a friend. Eight, eight tractates. I had a friend who was a, a computer technology person at the time. And I called him and said, we want to do this and we'll hire you to set up our office. He said, you can hire me to set up the office, but I'm not going to charge you anything other than cost of equipment if you do it with me. Nice. Okay. So we spec'd out and built the computers together. We ran the network cables through our little office. We installed a network system. No light. Uh, I became the system administrator. We designed a client database on a defunct database program called DataEase. And as a result of that, I learned something about technology, both hardware and software. In that, in that time period, other than folks who were electrical engineers and patent lawyers and the like, my knowledge of computer systems was pretty high up there. Sure. For litigators at that, at yeah. that time. In 91, my partner was offered a public job. He was going to be the chief deputy district attorney for our county and decided to leave, leaving me with sole possession of this law firm. And I didn't know that I wanted to stay in Springfield. Mm -hmm. I thought, I really, at that point, I learned what San Diego really has to offer. Mm -hmm. So I made some calls to friends in San Diego. Back then, as Jim will remember as well, there wasn't a lot of lateral movement. Uh, from the U.S. Attorney's Office into private firms. Mm -hmm. Ones that left ended up hanging their own shingle for the most part. You remember uh, uh, Lipman, Semmer, Coughlin? Yep. Uh, two left to went in, that went into big firms, Pat Swan and uh, Bill Grauer. Bill Grauer went to Greg Carey. Yeah. yeah. But I didn't know if the market had changed since 85. So I made some calls to folks I knew, both in the office, to say, what's the landscape like now for someone like me that has all these AOSA years? I've been a private lawyer for two years. I did criminal defense. I did insurance work. Um, I have a lot of experience. Well, I'll let you know. 20 minutes later, I got a call from the then U.S. attorney, Bill Braniff, who was in the fraud section when I was a baby AUSA, said, I hear you want to come back. I said, yes, I'd like to come back. He said, well, you're hired. Just like that? Just like that. That was an easy interview. Yeah. So I came back to the U.S. Attorney's Office, and now I had something that no one else had, which was technology. Computer technology. So now we're talking 1991, right? That was two years. That was the first year that the Department of Justice put computers on lawyers' desks. And they were networked in a system called Eagle. Mm -hmm. This was something I could deal with. You walk in your office one day and there's a computer sitting in the middle of your desk, literally in the middle of your desk. And I thought, this is really not great. So I unhooked the cables, moved it off to the side, put the cables back in and started up the computer. And people thought, you are a computer deity. You were a genius. I was a genius. And I milked that for all of us. <laughs> I could change windows, screen colors. You know, I could do like scrolling marquee. I could do all kinds of fun stuff, which was great. Uh, and it launched what ultimately became my career. About six months later, we had our first computer crime in San Diego. It was the third in the country. Uh, the first was the Morris Worm, which was a, the son of a CIA engineer, Robert Tappan Morris Jr., brought down the entirety of the internet in 1988. 
because he created a malicious program hmm. and released it accidentally. That was the first case. The second case was a bunch of teenagers in the Atlanta area that hacked into Southeastern Bell and were able to do fun things like turn off their enemy's phone service, give themselves free long distance, you know, that sort of stuff. Yeah. That was the second one. The best thing about them is they called themselves the Legion of Doom. <laughs> now, if you picture a bunch of pimply-faced kids being the Legion of Doom. Doom. Yeah. Mine was the third. And this was a disgruntled employee of General Dynamics, which was based here then, who became unhappy with the state of affairs. He was a database administrator mm -hmm. responsible for several of the databases tracking parts for the Atlas missile system. Mm -hmm. Atlas missile was built here then. And he thought he would do better as a consultant as opposed to an employee. So he wrote a malicious program, which he put into the system and then quit. The, the program he put in was designed to run several months later on the Friday night of a three-day weekend. <laughs> and it was going to call in the databases that he was responsible for, delete them, delete itself, wow. and delete the logs of what had happened. And he thought, well, they're going to have to call me back to rebuild the system. Unfortunately for him... And again, pure serendipity. Another programmer, like looking to see what programs were in the queue on the mainframe to run in the future, just out of curiosity. And he saw a program he didn't recognize. So he opened it up and saw what it was and did some things that today are still amazing. He copied it out under a five and a quarter inch floppy, <laughs> disabled it in the system, and notified security. Wow, good wow. for him. What a hero. What a hero. And in those, it, because this was a defense contract, the agency assigned to it was the DCIS, Defense Criminal Investigative Service, hmm. which happened to have some folks on staff who were good with technology. They brought the case to the U.S. Attorney's Office, went to see the U.S. Attorney again, Bill Braniff, <clears throat> to say, we have a computer crime. Do we go to Washington? No, 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 no. Let me get done. No. And everyone who's ever worked in government knows that you never go to Washington because it's the it's the black hole of anything worthwhile. And Braniff said, you don't have to worry. We have an expert on staff. <laughs> and this was a, a, a Unix-based system, Solaris? Yeah. That was that was my entree in That's tech. exciting. Wait, so how'd you find the bad guy? Oh, he, um, because the log wasn't deleted, we were able to track it to his station. Oh, okay. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That and didn't go to trial. Did you indict him? He was indicted. We ended up, uh, the, the computer crime statute of that era had some real flaws in it. So we, we ended up, uh, he ended up pleading to a misdemeanor. Mm. Which which was fine, but I mean everything was saved because the hero saved it, yes. and you got the bad guy. Wow! And, and it launched my tech career because suddenly I was one of three uh, prosecutors in the United States that knew something about computer crime, and the government had started recognizing that this might be a problem in the future. So Talk I, en I ended up being one of the leaders 
of the community in terms of prosecuting high-tech crime. That's really cool. I got uh, treated very well. The FBI decided to set up it, one of its cyber crime squads here in San Diego because I was here, mm-hmm. which is pretty cool. That's wow. very cool. And they sent me for the same training the agents got. <laughs> I went to computer forensic school. I went to hardware school. And I went to hacking school. <laughs> there's so a school for hacking? There's a school. For, it's taught at the FBI at, at Quantico. Wow. So, And there's a handful of prosecutors that were allowed to go. And I was one of them. So it kind of set my path for the rest of my career. Well, it was timely, too. I mean, it, you couldn't have asked for a better time to get into that field. But get back to the question. And that's why I left. Right. Uh, because there was opportunity for someone like me. Mm-hmm. So I left the office in 2000 to work for a defunct company now called Exodus Communications. I was in the group that they was designed to track hackers. Mm-hmm. Uh, when that folded, I was the co-owner of a computer forensics and network security company called Evident Data. And then I was solicited to join Microsoft as their chief security advisor for the U.S., which wow. I did for 14 months until I was solicited to come back to the U.S. Attorney's Office here. And I stayed there until I got to became ju- till I became a judge. What was it like uh, Microsoft? Best company ever. Why'd you leave? I left because it's very Redmond-centric. In Maybe order- Washington. <laughs> well, in order to be successful, you really had to be there. Sure. And my wife was, we are not moving to Redmond. And my deal with them was I could work from here. I traveled a lot. But it was clear that that was not going to be the future. Uh, but they were a great company to work for. I have nothing bad to say about it. It was really my choice in many ways uh, to fail by not going to Redmond. Uh, but I was solicited to go back to the U.S. Attorney's Office, and I jumped at it. You have a multifaceted career path. You know that? I can't hold a job. That was another way of saying what you just said. Yeah, I was trying to be put a nice spin on it. So you went back to the U.S. Attorney's Office by what year? This would have been uh, 2005. And then you were there until you were appointed as magistrate judge, which was what year? 2011. So a six-year gig. And then twi- cybercrime, yeah. And then 2011 to 2023. Yeah. Wow. That's exciting. That's amazing. It, it didn't is. seem exciting no, at the time. It's really cool. <laughs> no, but, I, I mean, mean all the a, different things you've done in your life are amazing. That's a great story. And your siblings, did they go to college too or no? My, I have a younger sister who my mother pushed through nursing school. <laughs> your mother pushed? My mother should have been given the degree, not my sister. She really wasn't terribly motivated. But she got a four-year RN. She got it done. And turns out she was a very, very good nurse. She's like an idiot savant. She was very, very good. <laughs> As a nurse, despite having other issues. Oh, man. Well, before we get into stuff like uh, early neutral valuations and settlement oh, conferences. We're talk about and the, we're going to talk about a little bit because that's what Joanne and I do. We want to talk about one of your passions. And uh, you, a viewer, you, a listener, you can't see that, but, but Judge Benman was hitting himself in the head with a device. Fortunately, he stopped. Um, one of the things that you really love is music. How'd you get into that? When I, when I was a child, uh, my parents insisted that I take an instrument. As not, I think in that era, a lot of parents did that. I don't mm-hmm. know if they still do. I did. Yeah. My parents, they didn't insist it of my sister. 
weirdly. Oh, that's interesting. Because I think she they always knew she was going to be trouble. <laughs> right. <laughs> but I know it may have been more malleable. My parents insisted I learn an instrument, and they gave me a choice of what I wanted to learn. The only instrument I was excluded from was piano, because we grew up in a tiny apartment in Brooklyn, and there was no room for it. There was no such thing as electronic keyboards. Then. Right. So it couldn't be piano, but it could be anything else. They were pushing me towards accordion. Oh, accordion. You could, you could have been on Lawrence Welk. I mean, come on. <laughs> Honestly, in some ways, I regret not learning it because it's become cool again. You'd be the first rock accordionist. Although if you listen to my records, actually two of the songs have accordion playing on them. Uh, the accordion is a nice instrument. That said, I was debating. My mother worked in a music store in Manhattan. A band instrument company, trumpets, trombones, flute. I could have, I could have picked any instrument I wanted. But what happened? Think of the early sixties. Guitars, baby. The Beatles came. Oh yeah. And the opening riff to Day Tripper. Guitar, baby. <laughs> you were sold. I was sold. How old were you? Uh, the Beatles came when I was ten. 64, I think. 64. Really yeah, okay. So did you start off on acoustic guitar or electric? Acoustic. Okay. Is that what you played your whole time as acoustic? I didn't or? start playing electric guitar until I was in a band. Okay. Yeah. I've always played acoustic. So you started playing guitar and you played you basically I played, your I, whole life. I played my whole life. I gave it up for quite a few years. Um and then uh, for a birthday present for me one year, my wife had discovered my two guitars and secretly, so I, I didn't even know where they were, secretly removed them and brought them to a local luthier to have them reconditioned. A luthier? A luthier. That's a word for you. No, yeah, I, I, new word. I was okay. learning a lot of new words, new words. today. I, I love this vocabulary thing. And the luthier luthed the guitars. Luthed. Luthered. Luthed. <laughs> reconditioned the guitars and she gave them back my guitars to me for my birthday All right. and said, we're going to leave them out and you're going to start playing again. And yes, dear. Roger that. And I did. And then, it, and you know, to jump ahead in my mid fifties, I wrote my first song. Really? And now I have two albums plus two songs. For the listeners, can you tell us what your albums are called? The first album is called Fat Man on Thin Ice. It's a song I wrote about aging. That's fun. Okay. The second album is called Nothing Up My Sleeve, which is the first song on the album. And it's it comes from, you know, when you're as old as Jim, you start sticking tissues in, the, in your sleeves. <laughs> yeah. But it's true of a certain generation. My parents, grandparents, great-grandparents. You know, the women all, and men too, they all wore sweaters. Mm -hmm. And they all had tissues stuffed in their sleeves. Normally, yeah, hankies hankies are tissues. And to me, that is the epitome of, you know, you're getting old. So, nothing up my sleeve is I don't yet have, if you listen to I'm not quite that old I don't have tissues tucked up in my sleeve. So, we could find that on Spotify? Spotify. My name, Mitch Denton. I'm going to look for him. I th- I'm going to listen to the way back. To some if you still there. have CD players, I'll give you CDs. But nobody wants CDs anymore. No. CD? I have a CD, I have a CD player. You know, I use it. You know what I use it for? I use it for Halloween music. 
So I put the spooky music in the garage when the kids walk up to the front door. So I can't get rid of the CD player because I have the... And life is going backwards because now people want vinyl. I've oh, yeah. seen that. People want vinyl. At great expense, too, the real high-end vinyl. Yeah. Yes. 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 You have a turntable? Still? I have a turntable. I have vinyl records. I don't play them. You have a little museum here in the house? <laughs> if you open that door and that, that's, that, that bookcase door actually opens... You'll find miles of cable and speakers and all. So kinds that's of like stuff. a little hidden. Is that like a James Bond thing? A secret passageway over no. there? Wow. We go off tape. He's got to show me. I got to see thing. this. Okay, we we got to do a little bit. Tell us about E and E's, and the reason I ask is specifically this. I know you. He, he, he really can't wait to talk ball. about E and E's. He's he, so excited. He's he, going to bolt. He wants to leave. He's going to run. Years ago, when I first started mediating, I went for a run uh, with Bernie Scomel. And he said, I heard you're a media. I said, yeah. I said, so tell me what you do. I'll tell you what I do. So I told him how I would do mediations and how they would, you know, you, you let the thing kind of percolate and it can take hours and hours, eight hours. And finally we get to a resolution and sometimes it goes in the next day. And, and he looked at me like, what? You wuss. I get these things done in an hour and a half. And, you know, I started nicknaming him Bernie the Hammer. Um, completely different perspectives. How did you, and then ENEs for listeners is early neutral evaluation, part of the civil administration of justice, really in the Southern District where you've got to go through that and you're going to be with a magistrate judge and you're going to hear them out and try to settle cases. Is that fair? That's fair. Every, virtually every civil case requires that we have an early neutral evaluation where the parties with their lawyers meet with the magistrate judge assigned to the case for a couple of reasons. It's Partly educational for the judge to learn about your case, for the lawyers to learn from each other, from their clients mm-hmm. to learn about their own case or how other people perceive their case. And the goals are it will help the parties as well as the judge move the case forward. Because when if the E&E fails, we go right into case management and set discovery dates, trial dates. But it's also an opportunity to settle the case early. And we, in our district... Roughly a third of the cases settle in and around the e Sometimes they settle just because the e is scheduled. And wasn't the Southern District one of the pioneers of the yeah. e program? It was. It was one of the pilots, and we we kept it. And I've always been curious about this. Do the magistrate judges go to mediator training school of any sort, or is there any kind of training program on how to settle cases? The court offers mediation training, and you could choose to go or not. I did go. Uh-huh. Uh, it was new to me. I mean, you negotiate cases all the time. Sure. So I knew how to negotiate a case. But you want to go just to pick up techniques, strategies, um, how to approach fraught situations, um, how to balance your role. And this is unique to judges. Your role as a mediator versus your role as a judge. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they really shouldn't bleed over. Well, yep. Mediator can bleed into judge, but judge not into mediator. Right. Um, so you have to, you know, be really cognizant about the role you're playing and make it clear. It should be clear without saying that just the fact that you're not settling, or we may argue about how our percept various perceptions of the cases, doesn't mean I'm going to screw you in the discovery phase. Sure. So it, there's a credibility building process. So we learn about the case. We figure out where the road bumps are going to be 
if, it, if we're going to go forward and we try and settle it if we can. So did you have any tricks for dealing with people who were super, super emotional, you know, litigants that were really super emotional about their case? Tricks? No. no. But, I'll, but I'll say I'm, my approach was much more Skullmill-like than McCorney-like. And partly it's the fact that we're not being paid mm-hmm. to do this. We well, have, you only have a certain amount of time per case. We have a certain amount of time. When I first started doing it, I would book a day. Mm-hmm. That's what I thought you did for mediation. And I realized really early on that if I set it from like nine to, f- to five or nine to four, two hours before the scheduled end time is when people started getting serious. Right. So I thought, I wonder if that'll work if I cut the time in half. <laughs> nine to 12. So I set 930 to 12.30 <clears throat> as my time. Mm-hmm. And if a case is going to settle, it'll start settling at 1030 or 11 o'clock. And then we work out the details. Is that what happened? That's what happened. You know, a, thir- a one-third batting average that early in the case is pretty impressive. It, it works. And I, I don't, I'm not entirely sure why it works, maybe because a judge is involved. But it gets into the question that you asked. So, so I'm more like Bernie in that I don't let – I started out with, I think, closer to what is the typical mediator, private mediator. Touchy-feely stuff. So why don't you tell me what, you know, what your case is about and how you see it and why don't you do it? And we start talking. Probably four years in, I realized that this is really not a key to success because they end up arguing before I even get involved. Right. Because we were these in joint sessions. I always do joint sessions. Oh, really? Always I, to start. I never always, do joint sessions. Always. Really? To start. Okay. One hundred percent. Even if the joint session is five minutes, mm-hmm. we get everybody together to lay the ground rules. What we're going to do today, everybody introduce each other. I want the parties to see each other's faces. Mm-hmm. I want the lawyers to see the opposing party's face sure. and how they handle themselves just in the context of these introductions so that lawyers can start getting an idea. Is this person going to be a good witness? Exactly. Or not? Yep. So I want those things to happen. So there's always... A joint session, whether it was live or on Zoom, it was always a joint session. But I changed the way I started them. Mm-hmm. I moved from tell me about your tell me about your case, even though I have their confidential briefs. I moved from that to say, I've read your papers. Let me tell you how I see your case. Wow! So I wanted to become the focal point, the voice. I wanted to become either the friend or the enemy of somebody mm-hmm. or the friend of both or the enemy of both didn't matter. So I read the papers. I, here's how I see your case. Here's what I see. The challenges are for each side because there are these challenges. These cases like this lend themselves to sell. So now plaintiff, what did I get wrong? Yeah, they may pick on something. It's fine. Right, right. Yeah. Defense. What about you? <clears throat> Normally, when I do that, when I did it, they agreed with me. 98% of what I said was agreement. How did you start numbers? Ah, so I would, before they come in, they always, they have had to ex- start the process. So there always, there has to be, oh, there's a floor a, and a ceiling. A, yeah. Yeah. They have long ways apart. So, you know, so we're, you know, what's your number? Well, my number is $10 million. Okay. What's yours? 50 cents. All right. <laughs> this isn't a great start. But, you know, we're going to have to, I'm going to ask each of you to start thinking about what's been said already. And we're going to have to get more rational quickly. We only have a couple hours. 
And if we stay where we are, I'm going to end this in 10 minutes. You know why? Because I don't care. Honestly, I don't care. You You're not, literally tell them this? Oh, yeah. Yeah. You're not paying me. I'm trying to help you. My job is to help you settle if you want to. Right. If you do not want to, I am not going <clears> to <throat> waste my time or yours. Ultimately, like if I settle this case, do you think I get an attaboy or at a girl from a, from the district judges? No. 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 Do I get a thank you from the litigants? No. So honestly, settle or not, I don't care. We're a trial court. If you don't settle, I'm going to get you to trial as quickly as I can. Mm -hmm. If you settle, you've saved yourself a lot of time, money, and effort. And I'll, I'll do the, the pitch about how long it takes for the case to get right. to trial. The risks. The, all <laughs> yeah. that nonsense. But yeah, so that's the numbers before we get into the private rooms are absurd. Where'd you fit these eight to 10 people? Well, on Zoom, it was easy. No, no Zoom, face to face. How'd you do it? So the beauty of uh, moving, I was one of the first judges to move into the new Carter Keep building. And if you may remember, on the floor I was on, there were no courtrooms. I shared a floor with another magistrate judge. And the, all the support offices that would have supported the court function were vacant. Ah. So I had each of us, both me and Judge Major, my who I shared the floor with, had a big conference room. But we also had four or five smaller rooms. Nice. So I could accommodate a big crowd. But you never did breakout sessions. You're I, always oh, no. I did breakout. Oh, you did. Yeah, I would. Whether it was you just do a short joint session. I do a joint session oh, as, as long as I could. Mm -hmm. Got it. And then we break out. Got it. Okay. Um, and to answer your question about how do I handle emotional people, mm -hmm. I appreciate that for some people this is their day in court. Yes. So, and it wasn't always the plaintiff because defendants, you know, feel wronged too. Uh, you know, particularly in employment cases, is mm -hmm. both sides feel that their trust was betrayed and they were wrong. I'll let them vent. Yeah. I'll let them vent. I think they, they need to. Yeah. But did, did, were you trying cases? I ended up trying one. It's not the culture in our district for magistrate judges to get consent cases. It right. has to be by consent of, right. of the parties. Mm -hmm. It's not our culture. This court decided to use the magistrate judges more to settle cases than try them. Other districts are different. With that in mind, because that's how I thought it was, why would it have been important for you to learn a lot about the case? Because you're not going to be the judge in most cases trying it. So what did it matter that you knew all these details just for purposes of trying to nurture a settlement? Two reasons. One, to try and nurture a settlement. And second, because I'm responsible for all the case management. Magistrate judges handled the timing of the case and also handled all of the discovery disputes. The more I know about a case up front, the better prepared I am for potential discovery issues. Got it. That makes sense. It that does. And we have uh, used up a lot of your time. So my uh, machine says we covered a whole lot of stuff. Did we? Yeah, we actually Seems did. like we just got started. We can go for a few more hours, I think. This has oh, been yeah. fun. He's going to love this. We'll get to know the dogs. Oh, the guitar. I want to see the sliding uh, I want to the see the hidden there. room over there. Really good tequila here. <laughs> this might go more than a few hours. Joanne, this was fun. Thank you Joanne so Jemid, much. We really appreciate your time. This is going to be posted. We're going to, Who knows how many listeners we're going to have? You never know. I'd say I'd put the over under at five. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. I'm hoping we'll for be, the over. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe we get the double digits. We'll see. All right. Signing off, everyone.
Take care. Thank you. Good to see you. Be sure to check the next episode of Beyond the Bench for another entertaining and informative judicial conversation, all ad-free. In the meantime, if you would like to learn about alternative dispute resolution, call us at 619-238-7282.